platform, everyone should go to migrate to YouTube. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Welcome everybody to the Sufina Society Nothing But Facts live stream on a very special uh, day in which we have a special guest. Uh, and that is, of course, Sheikh Admin Khalwadia of Chicago, founder of Darul Qasim College and truly one of the elders and one of the seniors now in the United States and in the Western Hemisphere, uh, a leader in knowledge, uh, a respected scholar, and somebody that I think everybody who is involved in dawah, in knowledge, in scholarship, should be looking up to as somebody who's uh, uh, built an institution and uh, established a credible uh, path of knowledge for a lot of brothers. I'm sitting here with some brothers who are headed to Darul Qasim, and uh, uh, and some brothers who have already been uh, to Darul Qasim. So we know a lot about Darul Qasim. Maybe some of our viewers out there are not familiar with Darul Qasim. So let's begin with a little bit of a bio and a background. But first, we'd like to welcome uh, Sheikh Amin. Sheikh Amin, welcome to the Safina Society podcast. Sheikh Amin is originally from uh, the subcontinent and traveled and studied there extensively before moving to England. He studied the classical um, menhaj of Hanafi fiqh and Maturidi aqidah, and he studied the Arabic language, of course. Uh, studied hadith and studied all of the sciences that any scholar would be expected to have studied yet he excelled and around by the age of 22 and 23 he was excelling past his peers and completing the curriculum uh sheikh before we get to your shift to england i want to ask you about something that's mentioned here in your biography regarding the theosophical initiation in to the akbarian school this may be terminology that some people are not aware of. And so uh, if you can kindly inform us, what exactly uh, does that mean? What exactly does it mean, the theosophical initiation? And what is exactly the Akbarian school? Mm. Yeah, the Akbarian school is named after Sheikh Akbar. Uh, Muhyiddin ibn Arabi, he has his own methodology in uh, understanding the asma and sifat and wujud and he has his own tariqah of dhikr and uh, exercises meditation etc so that's the school and the theosophy is you know when you adopt the school in the sense that you want to worship allah in a, in a, in a good way in a better way and that is where i think the focus of the salik is in ibadah and drawing closer to Allah, the Salik's focus is always Allah. The Salik is not at all worried about the mundane affairs of the world. Uh, his uh, passion is to serve Allah, please Allah, worship Allah, and, and then infuse it in his daily life. So that's what we mean by the theosophy. Yeah. Is it a spiritual practice? Or is it a school, a branch of Aqidah? Uh, it's both. There's a lot of uh, post-Kalam Aqidah there. 
and it's post-Kalam. He, he doesn't really care too much for the Kalami, you know, dialectics, but he, he does care for the the aqidah you have of Allah, who is Allah, how does he operate, etc. So it is a, a lot of uh, post-aqidah, post-Kalam aqidah. And there are some adhkar there, a lot of du'as, ahzab, that uh, adhkar that he he prescribes in his tariqah. Mainly, it's mainly an offshoot of the Qadiriya, Silsila, mm -hmm. but it's distinct in terms of uh, his uh, understanding of Allah, Allah's names and sifat, and that's what the Salik does. He understands Allah and goes into, you know, a discussion of Allah, how you see Allah, how does Allah manifest himself, uh, and so on. So it's, 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 it's quite comprehensive. Uh, do the traditional Ash'ari or Maturidi scholars, do they take issue with any ideas in the Akbarian school? And if so, what are some of their points of conflict? Uh, I mean, yeah, some of them are very vicious against the Sheikh. They don't like him. Some of them condemn him as a kafir. And, but that's fine, everybody to his own, I guess. <laughs> is it because of furu'i issues or usuli uh, issues? One or two usuli issues is about wujud. Mm -hmm. It's about existence, who exists, and so you know Ibn Arabi through his uh, very articulate, you know, expression of uh, existence, uh, he 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 comes to a maqam, a station where only Allah exists mm -hmm. and nothing else. So it's a spiritual state. The people who are kalami. And, and uh, don't get me wrong, I love the Kalam tradition, we teach it here. Mm -hmm. they, they, they seem to miss the boat. Mm -hmm. He's not talking to the Mutakallib. Yeah. He's talking to the Salik. Mm -hmm. It's a different mm -hmm. language, it's a different code, it's a different science. Mm -hmm. So that's where people get confused. Because in so many places, he does say that uh, Allah is separate from his creation. The, the, there's no what you call it hulul. There's no incarnation. Is they are separate. Al haqqu haqqun, wain nazal wal khalqu khalqun, wain ala. It doesn't matter how 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 low Allah comes. He's still the haqq. Uh, it doesn't matter how high the khalq goes up. It is still khalq. Mm -hmm. He makes that very clear, and, and people are confused because they, they seem to read all of his works in the Kalami tradition. And uh, we, maybe the people who study Ibn Arabi, we know he's not talking to the Mutakallim. Mm -hmm. He's talking specifically to the person who has entered into Suluk, and he's talking to them in their language. So you mm -hmm. have to separate the two languages. If you don't, you'll be confused, and definitely you end up saying, oh, maybe he's just a heretic, you know, uh, mm -hmm. so on. So we can't really condemn people who don't understand him, mm -hmm. except that they're lazy. They don't want to <laughs> learn the language of the sheikh. And it's basically, that's the bottom line. But we're okay. We're okay with that. Yeah. Tell me about the uh, discussion on his manuscripts and the transmission of his manuscripts. And if those manuscripts have any deaths or alteration, whether it be accidental or intentional, some people speak about his stepson as somebody who had added and subtracted from his stepfather's, from Ibn Arabi's uh, 
a manuscript. So could you talk to us a little bit about, about that and that, I mean, sometimes it's an accusation, but sometimes also more of an explanation away, explaining away some of the uh, problematic statements that Olimat find in those manuscripts. Yeah, I mean, that's a good insight, uh, whether or not, the, the, because in those days, the, the, they were manuscripts written by hand in ink. Mm -hmm. It's very easy when you transcribe to miss a word, miss a phrase, or even rephrase some phrases, which would be, as you say, an interpretation, mm -hmm. anything else of the harif. Uh, the idea that in, in certain places, is is being um, you know messed with matsus. Mm -hmm. I, I don't buy that. I think that's a cop out. I think you should explain what the man is saying. Don't run away from it. Mm -hmm. In in terms of academic integrity and honesty, if you disagree, just say you disagree. Don't hide the fact that he said it. Yeah, uh, and that will be the true scholarship. So there are places that certain people say in fusus uh, is matsus altered and changed but, uh, but you know uh, i think you take it on face value yeah and you explain it through his uh, methodology through his philosophy then you're okay so you're, you're not running away uh, from a problem you're, you're trying to explain what the sheikh actually means sure. once you explain it then it's not a problem uh, but there might be certain places definitely where alterations were common mm -hmm. In those days, even with the printing press, there were so many mistakes the printing press made, as you know. Mm -hmm. They had printed a whole set of Quran, uh, the Turks. They're, they're all wrong. Every page has mistakes. SubhanAllah. Of the Quran. Yeah, of the Quran itself. So they, they, they had to get, uh, in Egypt, they noticed that the, the Quran copy after the printing press was invented, they had to go by hand and write over the words. SubhanAllah. Because now the testimony to the hivs and the memory of those scholars that there's mm -hmm. no, it's wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't measure up to the oral standard. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. So it, it was quite common for people to, you know, miswrite, mistranscribe. Uh, but on, on the whole, we know what his positions are on, on the whole. So we would know whether this is, a, you know, a, distorted or not let's then uh if, if, if being the case that his works have been transmitted accurately more or less accurately without much ted sees uh, or or alteration um let me ask about a specific farai issue and that is his statement or let me say the statement that um will eventually experience a bliss of their fire is that an accurate uh, understanding of his statement, and how does a Muslim, how do the scholars understand this? It is uh, ninety nine percent accurate, mm -hmm. but uh, he says that, that occasionally uh, they will be you know brought out from the uh, the alam, the pain, and uh, they, they will taste a certain. Ladha and aduba, he pulls aduba from the word adab, sweetness. Then they'll go back to the pain. And that is for the purpose of understanding how, how do people survive in eternity with this amount of pain. So he, he wants to give it a, a kind of justification by saying that there are people in the world 
who are masochists. Uh, they enjoy pain. Mm. So he said, they're basically masochists. Uh, so for a brief moment, a temporary relief will be that they enjoy the punishment. But he, he, he doesn't say that they'll exit the fire. Yes. Nor does he say that the fire will be extinguished. Mm -hmm. He says, And that's as far as the nuss goes. And you can't, mm -hmm. you can't question him for that. Yeah. He does say they'll live there forever. What he says is that if you want to understand the process of acclimatization, how do you acclimatize yourself? Mm -hmm. in, in, in the fire and, and he remained there forever so that's what he's trying to do but he does make that statement but it's not permanent I mean, maybe it might be a few moments a few seconds and then this happens and then they go back to feeling the pain so it's like but he's spe obviously the, the literal semantics of hermeneutics of mm -hmm. so they may taste the adab and adab is from Udba yeah uh, so he makes that hermeneutical kind of connection. And that's a ta'wil which may be not in line with the, the, the uh, you know, Ahl-Sunnah, at least the majority of them, but it's, it's in line with the words, it's in line with the hermeneutics. Right? And the Akhila doesn't change. He says that they're, they're there forever. Yeah. So in that case, it's a speculation from on his part on how is it that someone will will or can survive that long in that much pain uh, more so than it is a as you said earlier a statement of doctrine just a speculation on how someone would survive that long okay and as he says that they're not going to be experiencing bliss as a state as a normal state nor will they be outside of the fire so in that respect there is no negation of any of the major elements of or the known maruf elements of aqidah in that yeah d definitely not i i think uh, you know for those who might want to justify their permanent uh, uh, you know existence in the fire it might help them <laughs> yeah, it, it might just help them so there are many animals who enjoy pain mm, and they live in filth subhanallah any animals in the world they live and survive they're born in filth subhanallah well we yeah. we we know that people in this life maybe addicts or maybe uh, otherwise are actually choosing actions that result in pain willingly yeah. with their own free will. Uh, yeah. Self-destructive behavior is something that yeah. people do engage in. Yeah. Um, well, maybe if you go with his major philosophy that they actually choose, you know, their way of life, they choose their lifestyle. It is through their mm -hmm. own volition that they want to be like this. Yeah. The Quran mentions that mm -hmm. that if they will return, these people who are in Jahannam, they will do exactly the same thing. Mm. They repeat their lifestyle and, and their yeah. lives. Yeah. So it's not totally, you know, what do you call it, heretical, but there's yeah. a sense of a common sense there, I think. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, let's take a drastic shift. Because in England, you studied a completely different massage science or study, which is Islamic finance. Mm. Right Now we shift from matters of the heart and of mysticism to the nitty-gritty of dollars and cents and dinars and dirhams. 
could you speak a bit about your research into Islamic finance? What exactly were you uh, examining? And if anything came out of it in terms of a product in the marketplace? Well, the, the, I, I was part of a group that were writing, uh, you know, a, a book on Islamic finance, mm-hmm. what it is, what it could be. So that, that, that's how that book came about. I, I, I was now assigned the first chapter in that book, and we got to know and learn from each other about Islamic finance and the transactions, the musharaka, mudaraba, what have you. Mm-hmm. So there, I think the thrust was on examining the, you know, the, the English system and comparing it to a kind of suggested Islamic system and trying to, you know, get the best out of both worlds, if there is such a thing. And that, that was, you know, through the studies in fiqh. We had studied zakat quite comprehensively, alhamdulillah. And, you know, and uh, there are a lot of, uh, in Hidayah, you have Kitab al-Buyur, and you have Kitab al-Ijara, and all of those wonderful books in fiqh that we have. And then on top of that, you, you have this, um, what do you call it, trying to, you know, plug in a square, Mm-hmm. Uh, pin into a round hole, which the tracks are different. So mm-hmm. our conclusion is that re- you really can't merge the two mm-hmm. because the, the Western track is very different from the Muslim track. And the gauge is very different. The, they don't, the, the train and the compartment won't fit on those tracks. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to redo all the tracks. So what we were trying to do is trying to help Muslims understand that the basic knowledge that we have of Islamic transactions, this is this is it. Now, I don't know what, what happened in terms of, it was used in colleges in England, the book, uh, to teach people an introduction to Islamic finance and so on. But at the same time, we kind of moved on from that and uh, we, we do other things here in this country, mm-hmm. trying to be more creative. Um, you can't put an Islamic label on a Western instrument. Yeah. And that, that's just false. Yeah. So we disagree with that approach. And uh, there are other approaches we have in terms of trying to understand the difference between uh, Darul Harb and uh, Darul Islam, which I thought was such a genius, uh, you know, understanding of the Hanafis, especially. Mm-hmm. Imam Abu Hanifa came up with it. Uh, and his students, uh, and they they took that. Said, there is a difference in where you live. Mm-hmm. So Islamic transactions are they you know part of your fardain, or is it is it basically up to the wali and the the hakim mm. uh, how he rules and governs uh, because he has the ulaya authority to to tell people this is wrong, this is dhulm. Uh, you owe him this, you owe him that, but in, in Europe, in the UK and the US, if you, if you have a dispute about an Islamic transaction, you can't take that to the judge in the US. Yeah. He doesn't know anything about Islamic transactions. So you're, you're compromising yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, are, you are the loss because you have to go with the law of the land if he says this. Now, the law of the land may be very contradictory to Islamic law. Yeah. So it becomes very, um, very confusing uh, for the for the consumer. 
So Before. that's why there's a new theory, well, not a new theory, an old theory which needs to be revived, and say we must uh, acknowledge in theory that the two <clears throat> systems are very different. Are they compatible? A few of the moral, yeah, I think uh, ideas, they're, they're compatible and they overlap, but how do you regulate this transaction and this transaction? Mm. That needs a new system. Uh, a system of uh, Islamic finance in Darul Harb, basically. So that's what, what we're trying to create now, Darul Qasim. When you uh, mentioned Darul Harb in the Hanafi uh, um, uh, tradition and definition, can you give us uh, the criterion of a land being called Darul Harb? Uh, many people imagine, based upon the terminology, that there actually is a battle taking place. Uh, yeah. So is that does that translate in the Hanafian framework? Yeah, that's a very naive translation. And people, because they don't know if the terminologies of fiqh, they translate everything literally. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's very naive, very, very amateurish. It means nothing like that. It's a very simple idea, and that is that in a land where uh, Islamic law cannot be implemented willingly, mm-hmm. uh, that is Darul Haq. Yeah, simple as that. Contest okay. is, is just between whether the, the law of the land is supreme or the law of Islam is supreme. Where the law of Islam is compromised and the law of the land is now supreme, that's Darul Haq. Mm-hmm. That's our definition. Okay. Nothing to do with warfare. No. So now when people ask about buying homes these days, there are some products out there in the marketplace where the contract on its face is a murabaha contract, uh, which is basically the organization comes in, buys the house in cash, sells it to you at a profit, and you could buy it out over time. So it has three parts. It's not a money lending contract, but it's two. It's buyers and money for a product. So on its face, it's a valid contract. And of course, as we know, within a few months, that contract itself will be sold, bundled up, and sold by the purported Islamic mortgage company in a, an unlawful sale of a whole bunch of debts to another company. You then get a letter in the mail saying that you're paying ABC mortgage company this much money, and here is the interest. Okay, So I tell people that you're not responsible for what they do with the contract afterwards. You're responsible for what you purchased and what you signed. And that sort of gets a Muslim over a hurdle, and at least he's signed a contract that was valid. What they did with it was their issue. But so setting aside the pragmatics and the day-to-day life of a regular Muslim who wants to buy a house, at a higher level, it seems to me that you are completely unsatisfied with the way that Muslims have tackled or developed a response within the contemporary modern framework of debt-based of a debt-based economy and an interest-based economy now you also said that you're working at solutions to this at Darul Qasim can you share some of the foundational principles of that solution and how would it trickle down pragmatically into the everyday life of a Muslim yeah that's a loaded question Mm -hmm. Um, why is it a trillion dollar industry yeah (laughs) yeah It's everything. It's the whole. Yeah. <laughs> you get me a trillion dollars, I'll answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
On the whole, yeah, we, we respect Muslims' emotions that mm -hmm. they want to do everything halal. Mm -hmm. That's, mashallah, a great value that you want to stay away from sin. We don't discount their ideas or their intentions and their emotions. We say this is wonderful. This should be the way that we believe and the way we feel. There's no doubt in that. You want to and stay away from sin at every level the issue is uh, you know it's um, a transaction and then there's another transaction so your transaction facilitates the second transaction mm. which is you've been underwritten by Fannie Mae or something like Yep. It does facilitate it. And, and the Quran says, al birri wa taqwa, that you mm. should cooperate with uh, virtue and taqwa and don't cooperate in sin. So, is there a cooperation there? That's on surface value, there is. In terms of just very uh, legal terms, in terms of writing the contract, there isn't. So, it will absolve you because you're no longer responsible for whatever they do with your money. Mm -hmm. That's a separate transaction. Yeah. So that much makes sense that you could do that. But at the end of the day, my biggest concern is, is it consumer friendly? Mm -hmm. When you offer somebody a product, th there has to be a satisfaction with the product. This is America. Consumers always right. So what I would want people to do is find a, a maybe a better way, a more refined way uh, to bring the product into the market and ha have a bit more consumer satisfaction uh, reviewed, uh, researched, and then taken into account. And then obviously the rates that uh, the halal industry charges to the consumer, they're kind of exorbitant. Mm -hmm. Which is another common um, complaint that people have. So we're, we're trying to find out through the, you know, the classical scholars, which I said that there's not a new ruling; it's an old ruling, mm. which makes perfect legal sense because it's coherent, and that is based on an example. You know, let's give you an example that we have an Islamic law of kisas. Can we execute Qisas here in this country by mm. ourselves? We can't. No. Why? Because it's the government's prerogative. If they want capital punishment and they want to execute someone, <clears throat> they have the <clears throat> constitutional prerogative to do what they want to do if the state allows it. <clears throat> or maybe the feds want to do something. The federal government allows it, then they have their prerogative, legal prerogative. We, as Muslims, can't say that the Qur'an wants us to execute Qisas, albeit as a penal code. doesn't matter which code it belongs to. <clears throat> so, in that case, our scholars would all agree that Qisas is exempt for Muslims in this country. Mm -hmm. No scholar will say that you take him back to Darul Islam and execute him. Correct. Yeah. No one will say that. Correct. Yeah. So every scholar is forced to say, 
that in the matter of executing, implementing Qisas, Muslims are forgiven and exonerated from that hukum. Correct. So that's one example where Darul Kufr makes a difference in the hukum. Correct. Yep. Now let's apply this to other ahkam. Mm. Maybe does it apply to Zabiha? No. Because we don't need government prerogative to do Zabiha. Yes. Does it apply to Nikah? No, because we don't need government invention to do that. Correct. Would it apply to divorce? Maybe. In some cases, yes. Some cases, no. So what do we do about those areas in divorce where we cannot implement Islamic law? Mm. You're going to have to be creative and think of a theory which is consistent with the theory of Qisas, that we will be exempt. Mm -hmm. And most scholars say, no, we're not exempt from applying the divorce laws in this country either, which will follow the law as much as we can, but, uh, you know, again, we're still exploring mm -hmm. uh, because it becomes a huge, huge uh, uh, problem for Muslim divorced women who are left bereft. Mm -hmm. And they don't have too much to go on if you implement the Islamic Sharia law. Now, this is a contingency, maybe it's a musibah, maybe you have to be patient, whatever it is that you want to call it, but at the end of the day, there are Muslims who are suffering mm -hmm. and they don't seem to like the idea of implementing Islamic divorce laws. Mm -hmm. So there again, what do the scholars say? And how do we overcome those problems? Because we have to fix the problem. We have to help Muslims. Yes. Not about Islamic law. It's about helping the destitute woman on the street. What are you going to do for her? Some people say that the society communities, uh, well, Look where that, that's got us, mashallah. That's mm -hmm. 40 years. Uh, yeah. Muslim community does diddly squat for anyone. So that doesn't work because you can't mandate that on the Muslim community. So the parents or the brothers and sisters have to, if, if, if the, the, the lady, she's divorced uh, and she's a convert, she has no father, no mother, she has no brother or sister, she has no relatives that are Muslim. Why would they do anything for her? Mm -hmm and so on. So there's a whole bunch of questions. I'm not suggesting for a moment that you change the Islamic law. Mm -hmm. I'm not subscribing to that. I'm saying that you need to find a consistent theory which helps and benefits Muslims who sometimes are compromised. And so that's another area where you might find that Islamic law is not going to be implementable. Mm -hmm. It might be implementable 90% or 95%, but that still gives you, you know, some room to think about legally how you're going to think about this. And then obviously you can extend it to other rules, other ahkam in Islam, like, uh, you know, riba. Mm -hmm. So is riba something where Muslims will be exempt in a non-Muslim land uh, mm -hmm. from you know, saying, okay, riba definitely is, is wrong. The theory of riba versus the hukum of riba, they're very different. Mm. So we subscribe to the idea that yamhaqullah riba or yirbi sadaqat at a universal level, where no doubt is the idea of, you know, taking money because you're lending money, and this is atrocious. Mm -hmm. yeah, it is uh, almost inhuman. So we agree with that, all of that. But here's a contingency. Now, the contingency is that what level 
and what amount of Islam can I practice in Darul Harb? So the Usuluyun, some of them, if not most of them, say we're not allowed to live in Darul Harb indefinitely. Mm. That's the mm. answer. Mm-hmm. To be reasonable because you're supposed to practice Islam completely. Yes. No. Right? Okay, so what do you do now with all these seven, eight, nine, ten million Muslims in the USA? What do you do? Mm-hmm. Where do you ship them to? Yeah. And wherever you ship them to, there's no Islam there either. It's <laughs> true. Yeah. Right? So it's a catch 22. Mm-hmm. What I'm calling the ulama and scholars to think about are the ramifications and the repercussions of forcing the issue and say that these still remain haram which they do if you can ascertain it is a you know what do you call it an executive decision made by the muftis of darul islam the muftis of this country we do need a solution mm-hmm. we don't have a solution it's very very frustrating Yes. So we, we, we are challenged. The ulama were challenged. And, you know, there are some issues there where, you know, Abu Hanifa actually says that la riba bayn al-Muslim al-Harabi fi dar al-Harb. It's a hadith that he has from Makhuls and no doubt Murus al-Hadith. But he, he's come to a theory. And this is my case. That in academia, in terms of developing a legal theory you have to be consistent and coherent mm-hmm. otherwise it's not a theory and the legal jurists the mujtahidun they're legal theorists mm-hmm. and they, they they think at the level of theory and then implement it so if the theory is coherent consistent then you can do this and it will be valid and i believe that it seems that abu hanifa's theory that it actually is not riba so he's not legalizing riba. He's mm. saying it's not riba in the first place. Mm. Mm. You understand? Yes. In the, he's yeah. not saying it's, a, it's a halal or haram. He's saying it, there's no hukum on it. Mm. It's a transaction that is not seen as a transaction in Darul Islam, in Darul Kufr. So that's where some people will go to him, Abu Hanifa. And I think some other ulama like Qardawi and Sheikh Ali Juma, uh, two or three ulama from the subcontinent and Turkey, uh, most of them, they, they all subscribe to this idea that Abu Hanifa's opinion would be the best option for Muslims in the West. And that is in taking and giving. Yeah. Okay. Now, the way forward with these matters always begins at the level of what you said is a coherent theory. Yeah. that gets a buy-in from the scholarly class or the intellectual class enough to inform policies of organizations, companies, etc., and then something trickles down and it becomes a reality of life. Yeah. This is a great way to enter now um, into another discussion on your think tank, which is, I would say it's partially a think tank and partially a college, right? Darul Qasim. It's a place where these ideas are being examined and these ideas are being fleshed out. And so let's now go from that to the discussion on Darul Qasim. And you founded it in 1998 with uh, only a few students. Um, And now you have a full-fledged 
uh, uh, school, f- uh, which offers a, I would say, a master's right now. We're, we're getting there. We've applied for there. master's accreditation, but and we do have a license to run as a college. And your your the uh, the the building here is quite impressive. It looks like an entire campus. Uh, the the build. I've never been to Darul Qasim, so I don't know what it what, where. Uh, where the classes take place, but it looks here that you have, um, this looks to me uh, as if it's a big campus. So it's, did you uh, acquire that's our, it? Uh, that's our new building. We haven't moved into it yet. We will soon. Inshallah. Inshallah. Within right. the next month, we'll be moving into it. Inshallah. Yeah. Was it a former college? It was. It was a purpose-built college. Yes. Uh, it was, you know, um, a satellite campus for Northern Illinois University. Okay. And they were operating from there for many years, but because of COVID, they had to close down and they had to quickly sell the building. So we Mashallah. went, now we purchased the building. Okay, that's wonderful. That's excellent. So now are you headed towards full accreditation? Yes, in terms of being able to offer a master's in Islamic law, Islamic theology. Okay. And... Um, Let's talk about that discussion because a lot of people in the field, they tend to have, there's two ways to go about it. In the Arabic world, they call these ma'ahid ahliya, which is like um, just a local education institute that is not accredited by any accreditation uh, organization. And then you have the official jami'at, the official colleges that are accredited. So uh, what are the pros and cons of both. Let's start with uh, the local institutes. Let's say down the road from you, you have Dar es Salaam, which I would say is a local, it's an institute. They're not yeah. seeking accreditation. So what are the pros and cons of getting accredited or not getting accredited? The, 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 the pros are you can, you can operate as a martial madrasa, you can operate as a seminary. And people don't need to be at a certain standard. And you can graduate people the way you see fit. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it does interest people uh, who want to follow the, the oral tradition. Mm-hmm. And uh, you get uh, many more subscribers, I, I think, from the community to that model. Mm-hmm. And it works. I mean, it's, it's the model we had in, you know, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. It, it was basically Ahli as you say, the local communities, and you can you can produce, you know, good ulama, good scholars from there. What it doesn't allow you to do, which a licensed college allows, that's the, the, the I wouldn't say it's a negative, but it, it, it does require you to do a few more things. As a college, if, if we wrote an article as a college in the U.S., and then uh, it will be accessed by almost everybody in the u.s mm-hmm. in academia because now you're a college you have the title of a college i write an article on Qisas, and everybody in the in, in the u.s academic system will be able to see it at least and read it whereas you could not do that with a madrasa article mm-hmm. you wouldn't have that credibility in mainstream so that's one of the reasons we went after this that we wanted to be exposed in mainstream which is one of the purpose of darqasid which we can talk about if, if you want. Uh, and, the, you know, the cons is, is that you might get students who come just for the degree and not for the knowledge. Mm-hmm. So that's a trade-off. 
basically. That that sounds like you it covers everything. But I want to ask about the devotional element. A lot of times, the non-accredited schools they place a lot of emphasis on the devotional side of the dean. In other words, they have a lot of sessions of du'a and ibadah and these types of things, um, holding that the accredited schools tend to not have that aspect. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I mean, it could be true. It depends on the program you run. Even as an accredited school, we, we have, you know, complete prerogative to do what we want to do. Mm-hmm. So if you want people to be just devoted and read some nawafil or du'as or ahzab, I mean, that, that's really up to us, what we want to do. But here's the thing. I, th- I think the primary uh, concern for a student of knowledge, a talib of ilm, should be ilm. Yes, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. If he does nafil instead of studying, then that's from the shaitan. SubhanAllah. Ulama of Deoban always said that, that you should not study, you should not be doing dhikr when you're supposed to be studying. SubhanAllah. And that was their, that was their taqwa. And the ulama of Deoban, mashallah, they, they were scholars, they were academics, they were, some of them were geniuses, and but they also had their own uh, individual regiment of ibadat and dua and something. So we, we, we want to allow our students to decide for themselves uh, which way they want to go. So we're not going to force the issue. Mm-hmm. The farai, the farai, they're going to do them anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the nawafil, we do encourage, no doubt. And we do have sessions for them, no doubt. But it's up to the individual. Now you, you're fighting. You have to remember, what's the backdrop here? Mm-hmm. The backdrop is the U.S., where there's nothing except atheism, agnosticism, and there's nothing except, you know, there's, you know, a, what's it called, a post-deconstructionism, mm-hmm. where it's just a feeling. Yeah. It's just a feeling. There, there are no rules, no boundaries. So we're housing those students. They are the context. Yes. I mean, they're not products of a madrasa that they come in all nice and polished and they have taqwa and they have this and that. They come in very raw. Mm. And if you want to, mashallah, give them some discipline, then you have to make sure that their focus is learning and they do the faraid and they take care of themselves, they stay away from haram. That is, I think, enough taqwa. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. else is totally nafil. It is good. It is wonderful if you can do it, but not at the expense of scholarship. Yeah, the nafil should not replace scholarship. Mm-hmm. They should be more dedicated to knowledge and learning and teaching and debating than they are at this moment uh, to doing the nawafin. So that's our model. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. And Darul Qasim right now is uh, uh, going to offer a master's. And right now you offer uh, courses that go for about four years. Is that right? That's at the intermediate level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, where we stop at, at a level which is implemented, by the way, by the Mughals. Uh, uh. And then we have two year extra in, in uh, Hadith studies. We do Dora Hadith and we have one year for the completion, which will be the master's year. Okay, so that's up to seven years. Up to seven years. Program. Okay, and that is full time or part time? Mm, that's full time. Full time, mashallah. Now, um, when we talk about knowledge and scholarship, every nation has, every Muslim nation has a mufti and has a Darul Ifta. Non-Muslim nations 
uh, also or Muslims in non-Muslim nations also need and have developed fatwa councils. And it seems to me that the fatwa councils of every non-Muslim uh, 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 country, Muslim, the, the, the ummah outside the in, uh, Islamic countries, it seems to be whoever established it first, right? That's all the criterion was, that you established it and you called yourself the fatwa council first. So you have fatwa councils in England, in Europe, and in America that are... Um, Somewhat, some in some in many respects, almost modernist in their approaches, or that you could say it's a swimming usul, a not a set and defined usul. Um, could you talk to us about the need for fatwa councils, your assessment of current fatwa councils, their fatwa, or their also more importantly, their methodology, and do we need a fatwa council? that is rooted in the in the form of the and with a clear usul. Well, Dar al-Qasim has Dar al-Ifta, as you know. Mm -hmm. We have a Dar al-Ifta where we have, you know, four or five muftis sitting, mm -hmm. answering questions that people ask, and uh, it's running very well, mashallah. mashallah. So there we, we don't have a problem with that methodology. It's very strictly Hanafi. Uh, sometimes we do go outside the mother if there's a very, very dire need. Mm -hmm. Our methodology is, is purely Hanafi, and uh, we, we train our muftis that way. Mm -hmm. As far as the national fatwa councils, I think they, they could, obviously, they, they need to know the full madhahib, but I'm saying, but uh, when they say the full madhahib, they, they must have someone who is an expert in each madhahib. Yeah. Not that they read books from other madhaib and then they incorporate it. No, there has to be a human being, yeah. like the Mamluks. Hmm? Mm -hmm. The Mamluk system where they had Qalis, they had the Hanafi Qali, Shafi Qali, Maliki Qali, Hamdi Qali, and they were in, in one square, and, and you could go to any one of them if you were from that madhaib. Something similar, akin to that, but I, I would want the council to be very robust mm -hmm. in, in terms of its uh, scholarship. That yes. this one person who's a scholar in Maliki or Hanafi fiqh, they are genuine, they are qualified, mm -hmm. and they, they do show a sense of taqwa themselves in their behavior, in their mannerisms, etc. So mm -hmm. that, that would be something that I think um, would be useful for the U.S. Yeah, it, uh, potential, but it's useful that there's a place where you have scholarship in action and it's not just based on, you know, this dead horse mm -hmm. concept of the darura. <laughs> yeah. Everything's yajus is darura. Yeah. Well, yeah. But we waited until it became a darura, right? Yeah. yeah. But I said, you can't use that as a usul. That's not a usul. Yeah. That's a compound, basically. Yeah. 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 Uh, and we've seen how the uh, recently, one of the first times that imams and scholars got together in mass and puts out a statement. Of course, I'm talking about the navigating different statement. Many said it was late, but nonetheless, it was one of the first times that you had so many uh, du'at and scholars and imams sign off on something, and it had a tremendous impact, even when it was late. Nonetheless, it had an, a, a, a massive impact, and there's a lot of evidence for that impact. Okay, I'm still on their chat, and they're constantly posting articles, citing their statement, 
and how Masajid have altered policies, organization have altered their policies based upon just that one, seeing all these names, they trusted the, the statement and they acted upon it. So there's a lot of power when that many imams come together. Now, this happened privately by uh, one sc- elder scholar going around and, and collecting maybe about 50 or 40 or 50 names, and then they opened it up after that. But don't you think that we need something like this that's almost like an official body that is producing such statements on matters of difference with it or on matters that should not have any differences of opinion within Islam uh, for for the regular folk and for the masajid to, to rely upon? Don't we need something like that as a permanent body? I mean... A national body? There, there definitely is a need. Uh, the, the only question will be, you know, from those who are not so pro-orthodoxy. Uh, people will complain that you're creating an orthodoxy which may not be in the best interest of American progressive Muslims. Mm -hmm. Who wants to subscribe to an orthodoxy when we have freedom of religion, freedom of thought, freedom whatsoever? So so that's the only, I think, you know, negative, if it is a negative, which I don't think it is, that you might face if you did propose such an idea. Yeah. Uh, the issue there is, is what you said. You, you hit the the right mark, and I think that's it. It's a, it must be an ijma'i issue. It must be an issue of ijma, where everybody agrees with the conclusion. Correct. Definitely, that should be the case where we have a group of ulama and say, if there's an ijma'i issue, then we will say it is ijma'i consensus, and that is the Muslim position. So that's fine. We can do that. Underneath Ijma, there are so many speculative ideas. Mm-hmm. Which I wouldn't want this body to just say, okay, because we agree, it, it is mustahsan, it is a, yeah. what, you know, good for the community, and therefore we will endorse it or not endorse it. Because I think that, that takes away fiqh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for all those listening, an Ijma'i issue means uh, regards a text from the Qur'an or a mutawatir hadith, upon which there is no difference in its meaning and there is no room to have an opinion about it. Opinions regard uh, the nusus that have speculation or they their transmission is uh, up for discussion, the nature of its transmission. And so an ijma'i issue is something that no two Muslims can have a discussion about or uh, debate. Now, let's move to the last subject of today's interview, and I thank you so much for your time. I know that you, uh, you, run, you run a mahad and a school and a college, and this takes a lot of time, so we're, we're very thankful for that. Um, the last subject is something else that you are an expert in, and that regards um, the spiritual science of dream interpretation. Can you tell us in what respect is dream interpretation a knowledge and in what respect is it a gift that Allah gives to somebody? Are there thawabits or established principles in this field? The dream interpretation, mashallah, it comes from the Quran. There are so many dreams in the Quran. Uh, Surah Yusuf, as you know, is very famous um, in, the, in this story of uh, Hudaybiyah. There's a mention of a, a dream of the Prophet, sallam. there's the Udhiyah uh, of Ibrahim, salam, and Ismail. So there are definitely landmarks, I think, in terms of knowledge. And the Prophet's own sunnah was that he would ask people 
uh, if they had any dreams after Fajr. If they did, then he would interpret them. And if they didn't, he would say, I had this dream, and he would interpret them. And sometimes Abu Bakr would come and say, may I interpret this dream for you? Mm -hmm. And the Prophet would say, yes, it's definitely a science, it's definitely a knowledge that needs to be uh, revived. It's almost dead, but there are definitely rules and regulations that the Sahaba knew, and they handed it down mostly to Ibn Sirin. Ibn Sirin, as you know, Tabi, a great scholar, is the Imam of dream interpretation. And he had dictated many usul to his students, and then now, later on, the Mutakhirin came, and they've written books on the Dawabit, usul, the rules and regulations of dream interpretation, and they've categorized them according to the names of things, Asma'ul Ashia, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you, you'll have the animal kingdom, you'll have the vegetable kingdom, you'll have the, what do you call it, land animals, sea animals, you'll have food, and uh, you'll have clothing, and you have parts of the body, you have relatives, different types of relatives, mean this and that, and well, so it's very well organized in, in the latter scholars. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they've kept it alive, and we should definitely keep it alive, and can it be studied? Yes, but you need a certain amount of malaka, uh, mm -hmm. dexterity in the Arabic language. You need to know the dreams of the Quran and Hadith. You need to know the stories of the Quran and Hadith. And uh, you need the language. Uh, you need both the language uh, of the context. You need the language of the Arabic. You know? So many dreams just come out from the word in Arabic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, some, some rules... Um, it develops through sohbah. Mm -hmm. you, you can't learn it in, in, in a college. Yeah. You can, but you still need sohbah. You'd have to sit with somebody who does dream interpretation and he'll give you the nuances. Yes. So in, in one entry for a dream, perhaps like milk, you might find five now applications. It can mean this, this and that. So the, the, the alim who's with you will say, in this case, it means this. In this case, it's, it's a lot of creativity there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it does change people's lives. Mm -hmm. You give the wrong interpre interpretation, God forbid, that, that, that guy's life is done. The hadith of the Prophet وسلم, the dream is on the wing of a bird. Uh, if it falls or if it is interpreted, it falls, means it happens. Does it mean if it is interpreted correctly, it will happen? Or does it mean any interpretation of it will happen? Well, if it's a false interpretation, it won't happen. Okay. So the, the ta'weed here or the uh, understanding here is that, uh, taqdeer is that if it is interpreted correctly. As, as much as possible. We don't require exactness. Mm -hmm. But if you're in within the realm, within the target, then it will happen. Then it will happen. And yeah. and uh, what is the level of yaqeen? Let's take a hypothetical. A person has a dream, a veteran dream interpreter, or even two or three. Some people they take their dream to two and three and four interpreters to see where the tafsir lines up. First of all, the first question is that a correct practice? And number two, secondly. Let us say in the hypothetical, they all interpret something, such as an event that would happen to the person. What level of certainty would that individual now have 
in that event occurring? Is it qat'i? Is, is it still dhanni? Is it certain or is it still speculative? Maybe. Do they have definite yeah, I mean, belief or is it a maybe? Yeah, I mean, the, the dream itself is dhanni. It is speculative. Mm-hmm. So he can't assume is wahi. Mm-hmm. It's not wahi. Correct. If he does assume is wahi, then that's a bid'ah. It's a sin. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. Um, and the interpretation then is also dhanni. It's not qati. The, the interpreter may make a mistake. Uh, which is fine, and he'll be rewarded for the mistake he makes if if he's qualified, basically. Thirdly, the amount of trust he must put in the interpretation is really up to you. Mm-hmm. It's individual. There's, there's no orthodox statement which says you must believe in the interpretation. But it's really up to you. Mm. And fourthly, uh, you have to make a choice based on your choice, not based on the interpretation. So there's no amal you're, upon it. You're, you're the mukallaf. Mm-hmm. Interpreter is not the mukallaf. You Correct. are responsible to do what you need to do. The guide, who is the interpreter, is just guiding you this way or this way. So you're still responsible Correct. for action. And that is where I think many people make a mistake. They start blaming the dream and the interpreter. <laughs> Correct. And what about this concept of asking three and four and five to ensure... The, that the meaning is sound and not one of them has not erred in his fatwa or in his interpretation. Yeah, you're, you're going dream interpretation hopping. Mm-hmm. Not a good practice. Okay. Uh, if you know somebody in the community, stick with that person because they, it'll give you some consistency. The reason for that is that that person knows you. Yes. Yeah, now, so. would we say then that the, is the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam called it 146th of the wahi? Would yes. then we say that is a a sliver of a wahi that is dhanni in nature? The dream is a type of wahi dhanni in nature? It is uh, 146 because... Of Nabuwa, yeah. Of Nabuwa, okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nabuwa, mashallah, as, as you know, if, 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 if it is a hadith, huh, which is part of Nabuwa, mm-hmm. the hadith also can be, depending on its authenticity, be dhanni. Ahad, such as, correct. No. Good. So, so, we, so it is fair to say, or accurate to say, that it is a type of ikhbarum um, min Allah or wahi, not maybe, of course, not wahi as in revelation of the, the law, yeah. uh, but it is of a dhanni nature, even if it is a, just, just yeah. like a mukashafa, all mukashafat yeah. will be categorized as because dhanni in nature. Always subject to interpretation. Wonderful. Uh, Let's take one final thing, and that is, what is your wasiya or counsel to a lot of the young students of knowledge out there who are watching this, um, who are trying to advance in their deen, a general wasiya amma for us all? Uh, you won't like my wasiya. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, very passionately Hanafi, so... Okay. <laughs> I'll say, become Hanafi and stick with it. SubhanAllah. <laughs> well, some wasiyah. of us here are smiling. MashaAllah. MashaAllah. Uh, good, good. So that's my only wasiyah that Allah will pick the right madhab. Yep. You'll be happy. Alhamdulillah. I'm, I'm, I'm just joking around. <laughs> well, I'm not, but I am. Um, yeah, study hard. Make sure that you have the adab of the kitab, adab of the place where you learn, adab of the sheikh you are with, even if you disagree with him. Mm-hmm. 
sexual and you maintain that adab don't become that western that you don't like somebody if you disagree with somebody you don't you don't have license to you know hurt people you don't have license to hate people stay within that framework of the adab of ilm mm -hmm. so ilm has to come with hilm mm. uh, which is tolerance mm? subhanallah, subhanallah ilm and hilm they come together you can't mm. separate the two so the, the the most important is adab subhanallah the Prophet said that my Lord taught me adab and he did a great job in teaching me adab. So I think that's the most important that you, you don't change your your you know lifestyle, you don't change your paradigm, you don't change your attitude or your culture, in assuming that since you are studying universities and doing this research, that you, you, you don't like the people who brought you here. Mm -hmm. you have to maintain that taluk and connection with them so that's very important at a social level at an individual level obviously you study as hard as you can burn the midnight oil make dua uh, do some dipper and make sure you have a role for tahajjud in your life all of that which comes with ilm mashallah perfect and, uh, allah give us all barakah inshallah i mean perfect uh, as uh, the student of abu hanifa said uh, uh, so we ask Allah, uh, knowledge is like a, a, almost a kinship relationship between its people. And since we're lovers of knowledge, uh, we want to always be in the good graces and in constant connection with uh, the elders in our community. Also with the tulab and everybody who's connected to this subject. And we ask Allah Ta'ala to let us live and die on good terms and in good relations with all the people of knowledge involved in Ahl Sunnah and in Da'wah and in teaching and in researching. Uh, so Jazakallah khairan so much for, for, for taking the time out. And hopefully next meeting will be in person in Chicago. Yeah, ahlan wa sahlan, you're more than welcome. And we'd love to host you. If you're ever on the East Coast uh, trip yes. or an East Coast tour, then please, uh, in, we'll, we'll, we'll be ready to host you, inshallah. Jazakallah khairan. سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته all right, everybody, that was the interview that we've been waiting for and had planned for some weeks now and it's always really an honor and a blessing to be able to have uh, one of the elders and one of the seniors and one of the uh, scholars with us here on the program. And uh, we really, as I said at the end, really, we want to live and die in good relations with the Muslims. And, the, and especially the khawas of the Muslims are Ahlul Qur'an, which is sometimes assumed to be Ahlul Ilm, right? Uh, Ahlul Qur'an, whom Ahlullahi wa khasatuh, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, the people of the Qur'an, they are the people of Allah and his specific those drawn near and the ulama have so many uh, praises and virtues in the Quran so that have no end to them so let's now turn to comments and questions let's start with our not going to say studio audience but close to that um, guy, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven guys here today so what do you guys think you have any comments or questions Speechless, mashallah. Yeah, it was alhamdulillah. Um, he has a very diverse uh, 
background. You have here the Akbarian element, the dream interpretation element, Islamic finance element, institution building element. I mean, these things are across the board. Your institution that you're headed to. I'm still thinking. Pumped? <laughs> There's a lot to take in. There's a lot to take in. Um, all right, what else? Let's see. Um, let's go straight to the... Uh, uh, Sharif Antoya wants to know who's in the studio. He's, he's, he's getting jealous. Because you know, Sharif Antoya, he came here last summer. Wow, that was one summer ago that we had Sharif here. Sharif Antoyo is from Detroit. Chief Latif is from uh, Atlanta. Okay, let's see. Um, I think the the guys at uh, in Chicago they're they're pretty lucky. They got Darus Salam, and really, literally just down the road is Darul Qasim. You could probably take a. Could you take a jog down there or ride a bike? Yeah, it would take like seven, ten minutes. Seven, ten minutes if you took a bike. Yeah, subhanAllah. And Darus Salam, it's. It's uh, transmission-based, and it's uh, devotion-based. That's the feeling I get when I'm there, right? And Darul Qasim is academic-based. And as he said, we, they became... Um, they're going for the accreditation so that... Uh, so that they could... When they put out something, it'll be read by the academics of the world. And Islam is always going to have... Muslims are going to be in every field. I, one of the signs is so like... That Islam is, it's it's a truth, is that its people are everywhere, right? It, like its people are everywhere. You go to the musalla of any hospital, and you have doctors walking in, and you have cooks walking in, and you have nurse aid, nurse aid, nurses walking in, and all the different categories of, I mean, now they have like four categories, not just nurse anymore. You used to have doctor and nurse. That was the whole hospital, right? Now it's like physician assistant. Now it's like, what else are the categories? There's nurse practitioner, um, as opposed to what? A nurse that's on strike, right? <laughs> nurse practitioner, registered nurse, uh, the nurse that's not Muslim, right? <laughs> and one's practicing, one's not. Uh, registered nurse, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant. What's the ranking here? PA is the top, right? And then you have, you know, so... Then you have the hospitals. Then you have there's so many different levels now. But you go into the musalla. First of all, these 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 multi faith chapels. Just call them a musalla. No one uses it except us, right? Yeah, every once in a while, you see someone in there meditating. He's going through a phase. When you see realizes stuff is nonsense, doesn't work, and really all he's doing is listening to soft music, right? They don't come anywhere. The place is just a musalla. There's nothing else. Rocks? No, well, you remove them. Right, uh, and you, uh, they have they have a chapel, uh, like a, you know the pulpit. Who has mass in a church? Do they actually have mass? Do they have a speech? The Christians give a speech on Sunday morning. Who's going to that? Right, it's just there. Right, it's just there because it's they imagine that it's Christian dominated. Now, practically speaking, there's rugs everywhere and masahif used. Right. In other words, like someone read from this. You go ahead. When you mentioned that thing about the, the devotional aspect or about nawafil, yes, uh, up to the student. What yeah. Would your advice be to somebody who's? Well, I was going to ask this question, but I never really got the chance to. Hold on, let me take this amazing sip of sugary cream. 
Muslim gives you a gift, you have to take it. Diet or no diet. That's my excuse. Um, I was going to say this. In a post-deconstructionist world, I didn't get a chance to ask this question, but it's all about feelings, right? So what is the cure? I think the cure to that is is really what he said, 75%, in the sense of ilm. Ilm is what pins down. It's like it... It's a, it's a bolt that bolts it down into the concrete so that you reach a point to say, I know I feel this, but A, knowledge is what makes you have that self-awareness that I'm feeling this. And it becomes a practice of a type of muraqaba in a sense that I'm feeling this. That's knowledge. That's a practice that you learn to do, Right. I'm feeling this. Now, let's weigh the feeling and let's look at the causes. Firstly, let's weigh the feeling. Is this a feeling that's good in the Sharia, acceptable? Is Allah pleased with this or not? If I was to take this to a logical conclusion, that's knowledge. Number number three, what's the solution to this feeling? So, why am I agitated today? I feel envy. Why do I feel to From whom do I feel envy? Oh, I feel insulted or I feel envy. Okay, why? Oh, because so-and-so didn't give me attention. So-and-so did better. Okay, so now we assess that feeling. So knowledge and feelings do have a convergence. And I think that's what ilm, tasawwuf, uh, Islamic psychology, what have you, that's where the cross of the path is, right? Uh, and where devotion and knowledge converge is this knowledge of muraqaba and self-assessment and muhasaba. I'm feeling this, okay? This is unlawful if we take it to its logical conclusion. This is the cure. The cure of hasad is another thought pattern. The thought pattern of what? Who, 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 did, who gave them all that? And what is it even? It's dunya. What do I care? This dunya is so short. This contemplation is really a branch of knowledge. Um, but then I would say that 25% of it, and he did say that he's not ignoring all no effort, but you putting knowledge first. And I'm telling you that he is, he's, he's right about this, that knowledge is something that lasts and stuff grows out of it, even if it seems painstaking at the moment. But the devotional aspect, the dhikr aspect of it, is what cures the feeling. It, what cures. You can have a lot of knowledge about yourself. It's dhikr that is the medicine, right? And when you take that dhikr as the medicine, that's where the feeling element comes in. We can alter that feeling. Dhikr alters that feeling. Right, fikr will lead you to the fact that I need dhikr. Right, like knowledge will lead you to the fact that I need this medicine. But those people who just go on dhikr, 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 and they don't read, they don't study, and they have an antagonism towards thinking, towards reading, towards the sabr that it takes to read and study. Right, they're going to suffer. Right, they're, they're going to suffer. So, so knowledge really leads us to the place where um, it gives us the solutions that dhikr is. Uh, is a cure. And that's where this post-deconstruction era and where it's just about what you feel, that's my, that's that's sort of like the antidote to that, right? And I think Muslims, practicing Muslims, they, their life and what they're doing is a demonstration that we have an antidote to this deconstruction, this uh, post-deconstructional world and worldview and the result of what it's leading people to. Just because you feel some way? All right, what if a fox feels like a hen? Are you going to let it in? Are you going to let it into the, uh, 
the pen. So now you have boys feeling like girls, and then they're getting raped. Girls getting raped. So all this from the deconstruction, feeling-based world. And we're the opposite, right? We assess our feelings. And some feelings, you let them grow, and you keep feeding them, and you keep feeding them. And some feelings, you don't. Like certain behaviors you cannot do in public. If you do, you destroy society, like defecation. What's happening in California, right? You went to California recently, and I'm sure guarantee anyone who's go to San Francisco, and you guys work there, you and Basha work there, people are defecating everywhere now. And it's almost like they don't want to make laws on this, right? They don't want to do anything. It's insane. Darus Salam, who runs it? The Mufti Azimuddin, his dad, his brothers, they run it. They're the founders of it. That's down the road. It's down the road of Darul Qasim, from Darul Qasim. Darul Qasim, as we said, is it's an accredited, it's heading to an accreditation. Okay. Whereas Darus Salam is like the, um, it's an institute. They're not getting accredited. Okay. Not that I know of. But Darul Qasim, as I said, it's like focused on scholarship. Darul Salam is like in mass. And it's focused on producing Hufad and Fuqaha, right? There's a lot of hibs. and But they're also social. Like it's an open, it's a public mosque. The, the front of Darul, Darul Salam is a public masjid, right? Anyone walk in and pray. And they use it as a college space, a school space. And they have a, a high school program. Like you could take high school there. You take high school on the computer, right, on the side, right, and I saw them, like, uh, just studying on the side, maybe have a math tutor, and they're part of an online high school. So they take their secular classes, and then they take their hips. That's far more, I mean, people differ about this, but what is the most important thing? Got to be the book of Allah. If you're an Islamic civilization, that's got to be. Then all the scholarship, the, the studies after the secular studies are around that. Right? Doesn't that make sense? In any Islamic civilization, the first but most important book is the Book of Allah, right? So that's that takes a central role, and then the the, the secular subjects around that. Okay, now let's go to comments, questions. What do we got here? Um, no questions of what's up. Let's read it. So it's, is there really any difference between Ibn Arabi's Wahdat al-Wujud and Sheikh uh, Zahindi's Wahdat al-Shuhud? It seems like semantics. How do you, def- like how do you define the existence? Uh, and that both are acceptable Bunny perspectives. I don't know. Wahdat al-Shuhud is known. Uh, Wahdat al-Shuhud is simply saying that everything we see, we see uh, it as a direct creation of Allah. And you see what attribute of Allah is manifesting from that. Okay. You don't see anything as 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 that's mustaqilla, or that's mustaqilla as an independent essence. It's not an independent essence. So every person in our life, Allah is doing something for us through that person, not to us, for us, and to us if we committed sins, and even that is for us. For your benefit. Every single thing. Every single person in your life. Every single event. Every single... That's what the shuhud is like that. 
So when Allah, when, when you see a lion, you're seeing that Allah is manifesting something so that you can have a concept of what Jalal is like, of what fear is like, of what power is like. When you see um, things in the creation, you always view them from that lens. That's the bit summary of Wahdat al-Shuhud. And that's, don't, no one differs on that. Wahdat al-Wujud, there is something that we have to dismiss. We have to dismiss any concept that is um, hululi or that everything is just um, uh, that we're all merely um, any hulul, anything that merges between God and the creation that is pantheistic in that sense, that we dismiss that. And of course, Ibn Arabi didn't mean that. It's impossible for him to have meant that as a Muslim. Tafadr. Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi. Okay. He is a Qadi. And it's good that you mentioned that because there's some comments on whether or not uh, whether or not Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi took that back or not. Took back his statement or not. So let's go to that. Uh, the other is Ibn Arabi who is purely a Sufi. And he left, he studied in Andalus, then he went down across and died in Damascus, Syria. Let's now go to what Mu'in sent me. He said, by the way, I want you to read this to see if Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi took back, uh, let's see, where is it, where is it, where is it, where is it? Ibn al-Arabi. Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi al-Faqih. Okay. Let's see where that is. Mm, he says that he took it back. Let's see, what is it now? Where where did he send that to me? Oh, here it is, here it is, here it is, here it is, here it is. Here it is. Qadi Abu Bakr, did he walk back his statement in later books? Died with Bukhari on his chest, right? That's what they all say. Uh, uh, made Tawbah his, on his deathbed and died with Bukhari on his chest. That's everyone, right? Anyone controversial? Any of your shiuch made a mistake in the past? Died, uh, made Tawbah on his deathbed and died with Bukhari on his chest. Okay. Um, where, did Qa- where does it say that Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi um, took back his works? The aim of this paper is to examine certain works of Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi, al-Faqih, okay? and to ascertain the chrono- chronology of some of his works. Okay, Is Awasim min al-Qawasim, it should be, all right, uh, uh, is, is it his final work, Okay, and has his final opinion, all right? This needs inquiry, all right? So he's inquiring, so let's see. Qadi's opinion on Sayyidina al-Imam al-Husayn that he was a rebel against Islam and killed by the sword of his grandfather. We contend the quote which to date is still on the website of the Shaykh. Okay. And um, <laughs> I don't know what Shaykh has a website. The basis for this opinion for these opinions uh, and the statement from the Qadi is from Awasim wal Qawasim. Okay. He says, we intend that we cleanse the earth from the wine 
of Yazid and the spilled blood of Al Hussein, a calamity came to us, which the joy of time cannot repair. Not one came out to him except by an interpretation, and they did not kill him except by what they had heard from his grandfather, the guardian of the emissaries. I doubt that Ibn Ziyad and Yazid, they were looking in the books and saying, what is the hukum of the rebel? What the prophet want us to do here? Are you serious? Do you think that they went and said, what does the prophet want us to do? Yes, he wants us to kill his grandson. Absurdity. I mean, that's absurd, right? They just had an interpretation that this is what the prophet would want us to do. Are you serious? That's absurd. We can understand this coming from the Shia for they are... Forget the Shia. And we're talking about Ahl-Sunnah. However, from a Sunni Maliki Sheikh who has promoted the school of Malik, edited the translation, and printed in 1995, he says it's an untenable position. Unless they are genuinely not aware of the familiar later opinion of the Qadi, a reprint has been done. The defense against disaster was, was the name given. Okay. To date, there has only been one critical, complete edition of the Awasim by Dr. Tal- Talibi. All right. I'm talking about just like the different. I want the Khulasa here. I, I mean, I would love to read the whole thing, but I'm not going to read the whole thing on a stream. He does a good discussion on the transmission of the book and the different editions of the book. Okay. And that there is a false version of the Awasim, which he calls a pretender. And then we are now swimming in different editions and different statements, right? And so, like, you remember what the Sheikh, uh, what, what, what Sheikh Amin just said about people, what they said about Ibn Arabi? Many people, when they love Ibn Arabi, and they're in Syria, and you have to love Ibn Arabi if you're in Damascus, but they, they just can't stomach certain opinions, or, or they just disbelieve certain opinions that are completely wrong. They spin around it and say, no, 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 no. It's not Ibn Arabi who was wrong. The transmission was wrong, right? It's inaccurate, right? Okay, but how do you know it's inaccurate? That is, so Sheikh Hamid says, no, by and large, it's accurate. Because when you write so much, you're going to repeat your opinions, right? So that's where, and that's where, uh, and we say this too about uh, Ibn Abi Zayl Khairawani, when he says, majidi bivatihi, in the Risala, and the ulama said, that's, this is wrong, right? And then some say, no, he meant to put a period here and begin the new sentence. Period. And then is a new sentence. Okay, fair enough. Another, no, it was a wrong, the copyist made a mistake. Okay, you know where all that disappears? He repeats it in another book. Right? He repeats it in another book. So why don't we just do the right thing and say, a great scholar made a mistake. Why don't people just say this when they're they, the ones they look up to made a mistake, right? They made a mistake. Simple, huh? With their people? Yeah, he repented on his deathbed. But, uh, <laughs> but we, we should, the reason we are is we don't follow any Adam because he's Masum. So make a mistake. We the Nabi or something? We, we don't make mistakes all the time. And we're, and, 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 just admit it. So, Defense Against Disaster, edited by Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Murabit, who mentions nothing about the edition other than he was so enamored by the notes of the editor, you know, Sheikh Abdul Qadir, Ian Dallas, head of the Murabitun. Okay? For they, 
I'm, I'm assuming that's him, Abdul Qadir al-Murabit. For they seem to him as an important text. Nothing is mentioned that this is a chapter which the editor has taken from the Awasim. However, he doesn't mention, again, more uh, discussion on the text, which is not wrong. It's good what he's doing, but it's just we're not going to read that on the stream. Okay. Uh, all sorts of different works. Uh, where is the... Any content here? I'm looking for any content on... doesn't seem like there's much content on where or quote or something that's authoritative to say that uh, all right here we go the contentious opinion of the Qadi about Imam Hussein after all that this is where we want okay we move now to present the opinion of Qadi Abu Bakr Ibn al-Arabi on the person of Sayyidina Imam Hussein radiallahu ta'ala we translate his exact words from the complete edition of the Awasim and then from the Aridah or the Aridah, and finally, okay, Aridah, I guess, uh, from the Masadic. He says, we intend we, that we cleanse the earth from the wine of Yazid, meaning he's disavowing from Yazid, and uh, the spilled blood of Al-Hussein, a calamity came to us, which the joy of time cannot repair. So that part seems sympathetic, okay? Calls it a calamity. The spilled blood. Not one came out to help to him except by an interpretation. How does he know that? How does he know that they went with a sound intention and an ijtihad? And what person would have an ijtihad that this is what the Prophet ﷺ wants us to do? And they did not kill him except by what they had heard from his grandfather, the guardian of the emissaries, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. From this, people have concluded that what people uh, have concluded for we are not responsible for what people conclude. This, the opinion of the Qadi has been used to malign him from his death to now. No one has even highlighted that this obnoxious opinion was an earlier opinion. He changed his opinion okay, on quite a few points, which he had written within the Awasim if the editors of his works had just highlighted that his later works gave a different opinion. Maybe in the future, well, where is that second opinion? Okay. Maybe in the future something could be written, blah, blah, blah. The six is that they are in people disagreeing. As to that, you withhold the hand from one who is not fit to rule, an oppressor, an abuser, wrongdoings, then no. With this interpretation, the two nobles, Hussein ibn Ali and Abdullah bin Zubair, arose against Yazid. So in another opinion, he's saying here that it was valid for them to rise up against the governor. People disagreed. Some said, you rise up against the oppressive governor, right? If he is not fit to rule. And that's what Al-Hussein and Zubair did. This is the same author commenting on the same situation. However, he states that someone who is not fit to rule, an oppressor and abuser and wrongs, then no, for this was the interpretation of Imam Hussein. As to the pledge of allegiance to the imam and the obedience to him when he is not fit for that, do you contest or do you rise against him? Yes or no? Sorry, do you content, contest and rise against him? Yes or no? From them who said yes, that which is necessitated by agreement with the pledge, uh, establishing is no contesting the matter. Uh, blah, blah, blah. He's saying that there are some people who said no, and then some people said yes, and this is the basis of Hussein. Sayyidina Hussein and Sayyidina Abdullah bin Zubair. Okay? 
So, but it's not necessarily negating his first opinion because the first opinion is not whether or not Al Hussein's revolt was valid. It was that whether or not Yazid and Ibn Ziyad acted upon an interpretation. In other words, he's saying, because both could be the case. This does not negate the first opinion, right? So yes, so Hussein had a valid inter- ta'wil to go and rebel. And yes, according to the first opinion, yes, Yazid and Ibn Ziyad also had a valid interpretation to go and quell the rebellion. He's still having a great husn al and giving a lot of credit to, Hussein, to Yazid and Ibn Ziyad that they truly wanted what the Prophet wanted, right? That doesn't negate the first opinion so far. Okay. So I don't see... To conclude, we have shown by an external, internal examination of Qadi's works and Awasim is one that his earliest, his earliest work and the Aridah and the Masadic are two of his later works. The opinion of Qadi has written in these two works are the ones that he died on. It doesn't negate it. I don't understand what he's saying here because it does not negate it. Am I right or wrong? Right? So it is possible that two groups fighting, both of them are doing a valid ta'wil and neither of them are guilty, right? Mm-hmm. That's what he's upon right now. That's what Qadir Bakr is upon right now. Because the first opinion never said Hussein was wrong. He's, it is a defense of Yazid and Ibn Ziyad. So after all this reading, and that's the summary, why couldn't he put in... Not gonna, not gonna be, you know, uh, pessimistic or anything. But when you have articles like this, by the way, this seems to be a a, a respectable scholar. So I'm not dissing the scholar who wrote this, okay? But uh, but I don't see where. How is it a take back? How is it a walk back? You didn't walk back your position. You still held. Qadi Abu Bakr still held that Yazid and Ibn Ziyad are upon a valid opinion. Right or 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 an head like they had a good intent in this. Explain to me in what world do you have a good intent to kill the prophet's grandson? No. <sighs> Next. Yes. A student of knowledge, I think you have to play the long game. That's my, my, a lot of people get caught up in the, in the, in the immediate years. And that's a mistake, right? You got to realize that the talab al-ilm is, it's a long-term thing. And you have to have a lot of sabr. And the time that passes will be the test of our sabr and our ikhlas in seeking knowledge, right? Because if you, if you hold out and you keep going, and you don't stop, you will attain, you will attain the knowledge. You may not, and remind, remember, I said yesterday, I'm very suspicious about, not suspicious, but I have a certain f- observations. When you go to a school that's prestigious, it has an ability to ruin you. Because everywhere you go, you say, where do you go? Oh, I went to so-and-so. All of a sudden, you're, you feel like you've arrived. Wherever you have it, right? Whereas people who go to some dusty school or some unknown school or people who don't go to any school and they studied here and they studied there people always look down on you or they don't view you as anything that is good for you 
I'm telling you that's good for you. How many, this is a silly example, but it's true. It's the same concept of human psychology. How many first round picks are a bust? And how many greats in any sport were like the hundredth pick? Because he walks on the field, no cameras are running to him. No money is coming into his bank account. What does that do? That makes him focus on the game and prepare and get better, right? So likewise, when people say, when they, like, let's say, graduate from a local operation like us here, and then they go to a great school, okay? They have a test. Yes, you may learn a lot, but you come back and you drop that name, right? Your world is changing, and that's not good. And people view you differently. That's not good. So you have to be very careful from that. And there was a study done, secular study, that said that they tracked some of the greats. And they wanted to see if, what's the correlation, the great success stories in a certain, in various industries. So pharmaceutical, business, medical, all different industries. And they said, let's track the, the best of them. And let's see what they had in common regarding their schooling. They said there was nothing. There was there was in fact a surprise. The vast bulk of them came from regular, mediocre, no-name institutions. So then they did a second study because they got curious. They said, "Let's see their counterparts, the people who graduated the same year from the same towns, etc., who went to the Ivy Leagues, and let's see where they are." And they turned out to be like not as successful, right? So they said, "How is it like the counterpart in the industry?" Someone who graduated the same year you did and went down the medical route. You ended up here, and this person who should have been just like you, but he went to an Ivy League school, he ended up down here. And they found overall, of course, there's not 100%, but overall, these people who had weaker looking, weaker looking, or mediocre educational institutes, or not big names, they did better consistently. And they said, this is bizarre. This makes no sense. It shouldn't make any sense, right? But then they went to the deeper psychology behind it. All those who went to those posh schools of the Harvards and Yales of the world and the Oxfords and the Cambridges, they got posh. They got soft. Their hunger died. They were satisfied. Like, this is, all right, this is my thing in life. Whereas those who went to, like, Hartford or uh, Cleveland or... School, no names, right? And some of them, self-taught. In, in some fields, you could be self-taught. Like in business, you don't need to go to school. Self-taught. These guys, at the same age in life, no one was looking up to them. Everyone dismissed their education, dismissed them. Like, you're, you're not someone to look at. That f fueled their fire. And they psh, went off to succeed, right? So don't be, my message is, Look at the long run and don't look at the immediate names. Even the SNED. I know someone, subhanAllah, that I thought I would study under. Right? Ten years studied with one of the biggest shiuch daily. And when he came back, like a complete astaghfirullahaladzim, like a flop. No impact. No impact. And just seems self-satisfied. Like he arrived, he got his gift of, from Allah already, as if that, right? Like I got the gift, I did the 10 years with the sheikh, etc., etc. No hunger now to like prove yourself, to do something. But life actually begins, you start to, your output begins 
right after you supposed to begin after you study. So that's something. It's a mirage. I guarantee you, it is a mirage. What you should look for is the hungry person, and the time that that passes will test your ikhlas. The more people look at you, oh, there's nothing, right? That's a test of ikhlas. Okay. And the more time passes and you see that your peers have passed you by, are you going to keep going? Are you going to be so worked up on the inside that you just want to check out? I don't even want to be here anymore, right? It's a test of ikhlas. So don't imagine that talab al-ilm is like university where you do four years and I'm done. And I really need this prestige in these four years. That's all a trick of shaitan and a trick of the ego at the same time. Asim al-Hakim By the way, I did track down his nationality He's a Saudi I didn't expect that at all Right? He's a Saudi national And I'm not going to be told disrespectful to the guy But he is pretty consistent Like, sometimes you have uh, Imams that are Um they got drama. He seems to be like pretty steady, right? He's, he, and you know what he's going to say. You could disagree or not. Anyway. For some reason, every time he opens his mouth, I laugh, right? I'm not laughing at him. He's just, everything about him is funny, right? Something about him, ha- he's, something about him is just comedic by his nature. And, and, and uh, I'm not laughing at him. I'm, um, I just think his way he talks is hilarious. Um, I don't know what is it he's about like him. Naturally funny. Yeah, he's just naturally like that. Like he'll say a normal statement, but it'll be funny. Like yeah, I mean, I like to separate between the person and his menhaj and his what he says, because we know that we are total different worlds. He doesn't believe that Wahhabis exist. Like we're in a different world, right? We're in a different world. By the way, their group was they were called what were they called? Al Ikhwan, not Ikhwan Muslimin of the Arab world, but their original group were called the Ikhwan, right? And they t- they killed Muslims who disagreed with them in Aqidah. Okay, in any of it. And even so much so that their king had to uh, disband them all and, and fight them. Okay. Well, Asim al-Hakim said in a Q&A that it's permissible to eat things like Big Mac in USA as, as a Christian country. Did he live in the USA to see what kind of Christian country this is? Where is the Christianity? Uh, are companies Christian? Right? Let's say you have a, a, a Christian country. Are companies Christian? Is Tyson's? It's Ch- Chick-fil-A, it actually is. They're, they're Christian, right? But the question is, do they slaughter? Maybe in one Hanbali opinion, it doesn't matter if they slaughter or not. But the mas'ala is, the assumption is the Jew and the Christian who slaughters. So if I go to Amish, Pennsylvania, and the Christian man is there and he slaughters, that's different. It's the slaughtering as a Christian. So that's the... He used an example of the prophet eating food from the Jewish tribe as proof. That is correct, because the Jews slaughtered. Okay, and That's kosher, yeah. So Christians, do they slaughter? By and large, no. And the only small sects, okay, small sects, such as the Amish, will do that. Okay, And then we can eat that food. Okay. Hasim and Hakim said it was all right to drink 4% alcoholic beer. You put any alcohol into anything 
and it has been rendered and it just unless he's talking about the old school um nabiv okay and you know i doubt that that's what it is because nabiv does not alter your mental state and it is not fully fermented nabi there is a gradient between juice and fermented juice that middle area is called nabiv it is not fully fermented so we cannot even say it's an alcoholic drink it alters your mood but not your mind so these are common fatawa that come from the salafi backgrounds i mean i don't know about the alcoholic one but definitely all of the food of ahl kitab regardless right is permitted regardless of how they slaughter it but that's not the fatwa that uh, we're going to go by or teach okay this is a it's actually interesting let's hear it so uh, one of the uh, viewers was commenting before how like Imran Khan you know how he's in jail and, mm-hmm. stuff? and obviously we don't want to go into something that could been like been like 10 times that we've covered it yep but um they're saying that he asked for books in jail and so I asked the the viewer I'm like all right can you give us a list yep that's what they sent it right now and they said he asked for these books in jail he asked for the shifa the muqaddimah a book called The Message of the Quran, yep. Islam and Quran, The Vision of Islam, Life of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and a bunch of Sirah books, um, okay. uh, Life and Times of Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Yep. Thankfully, they're like asking. Like, are we going to give it to him? No, he's asking, so he's in jail, right? And he All these books are great. Yeah. That's what he's requesting. Yeah, so, like, I'm surprised that he's requesting that. Doesn't he have a thousand assistants and he's... A millionaire is tell his PA to go get him those books, right? Is he putting that out in public? No, no, like he's gonna get them. Like okay, good. That's the books that he's getting. That's excellent. So his wife is a sheikh, by the way, like a scholar, I think. Isn't she? That's what I heard. That he married, a, a, you know, like a, a mystic. So, so that's good. Very good. You know, what else are you gonna do in jail except for read and do dhikr and. How about give him books on death and afterlife? How alive is the self in Egypt? It's there. They, you have it. You can go to gatherings. Is it totally prohibited to recite Fatiha after the Imam in loud rakas? The Shafi'iyah require you to recite the Fatiha after the Imam. And that's why sometimes the Imam will pause. Otherwise... We don't, we listen to the imam only, and we don't recite with the imam. What's the best way of explaining Salafiyah to someone who doesn't know about that? Sheikhs they listen to are with this group. Salafiyah is a fifth madhab, but we will not accept its usul, right? We won't accept a fifth madhab. We don't need a fifth madhab, but it is a madhab, right? But one of the problems with it, it does not have one founding imam, and hence many of its usul and furu'a become fluid. That's the problem. It's very fluid. You think that it's, oh, Quran and Sunnah is one thing, but when you look at their actually actual opinions, they're very di- all over the place. In Aqidah, all over the place. There was a brother who made a, uh, a, com- a compilation of their, uh, the fatawa. different fatawa in Aqidah, let alone fiqh. So what is better for a person is to take a method that has a founder, that has a crisp usul. These are the usul. Of course, later scholars within the method have added and subtracted, but at least we have tracks. 
and we know who the imams of the madhab are and what are the Muhtamad books. Salafi, uh, and that's one thing I, I guess I sort of regret about in the debate, I said I listed Wahhabis, right? Remember that debate that we did? And I said, all these groups, and I listed all the groups, and I put Wahhabis at the bottom. What I should have put is Salafis, because in a sense, that is, it's a whole nother madhab. And I don't think Salafi is in line with most of the um, madhahib, the four madhabs. It, of all, their fiqh will be Hanbali, aligned with Hanbali and Shafi'i fiqh, probably most. But in Aqidah, um, Hanabila, mostly uh, along the Hanabili line, and they will part from them. They will part from them. Sheikh Yusuf ibn Sadiq and Sheikh Dr. Sheikh Hatim al Hajj, he says the Salafiyya are not Hanabila in Aqidah. They are, sal- they are their own Aqidah. They are not Hanabila at all. He said, do not, do not bundle them. So what I'm saying is they may resemble the Hanabila the most. They may cite them the most. They may be mixed with them the most, associated with them the most. But Dr. Hatim al Hajj, we're going to go by him, right? And Sheikh Yusuf bin Sadiq. And they both say the Hanabila is one track, the Salafi is another track. So we're just going to cite the authorities. Is giving homeless food to the homeless considered zakah? No, it's not. Number one, zakah has to go to specific categories. Has to go to a Muslim. That's number one. A poor Muslim. Sadaqah can go to anybody. But zakah must go to a Muslim who is impoverished. And three, it has to go in kind. So that means I have zakah on money. I have to give it in money. I cannot give it in gift cards. ShopRite gift card? No. I cannot give it in food. I have $1,000 of zakat. Let me buy $1,000 of grain and give it out. No. You have to give it in kind. You have zakat on crops. You have to give it in crops. Unless the wali, the governor says, no, I want it in money. Because that's what the people need. Right? So the, 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 that, that's the condition of zakat. It has to be given in kind. Gold, silver, and currency are all one. So if you have gold, you can give dollars. You don't have to give it in gold. That means you don't have to chip away at your pieces of gold to give the zakah. You can give it in the value in currency. Is sealed nectar a good sirah book? It's a sirah text that, that does something that no other sirah book did, which is limited to sahih hadiths. And sirah does not require that. In our usul, aqidah and fiqh require sahih and hasan hadiths only. But sirah allows for the da'if. And it allows for even that which is, is very weak sayings, athar. And that's the difference between sealed, the sealed nectar, uh, sirah, and that's the difference between sirah and a hadith of rulings and ahkam. Okay. All right, North Korea. So we, we, we answered that question. In the grave, will we be shown a photo of the prophet or we physically come to the grave and we will be asked, who is this man? Allah Adam, but the questioning will take place. That's what we know. The questioning will take place. Uh, traversing the sacred asks the question, is this traversing tradition, the same group or no? Uh, what is your view of Hassan Spiker on modern Akbarism? I have to be honest with you. We have been taught by Sa'ad al-Ba'alawi. We do not read the books of Ibn Arabi. So I, I read the biography of Ibn Arabi just from the devotional side of Ibn Arabi. But once it got into his thought, 
I really just sort of stopped there because we don't read his books and they say they give two opinions. Either his what's in it is the correct transmission, you'll be confused. Or it's not the correct transmission, therefore don't read it. So they go by both, right? And they and they say we don't read his book. We have a good very good opinion of him. We don't hold him to be a kafir or mubtadi'a zindiq. No, we have a good opinion of Ibn Arabi. Uh, but we do not hold that he... Why do we have a good opinion of Ibn Arabi? Because all the ulama is sham, when he died, they had a great opinion and they prayed upon him. Our, who's going to know better about Ibn Arabi? The people who came 700 years after, however many years after, or the people who lived in his time? And we know who the ulama of sham were at that time. Like our Islamic history is documented. And that's one of the, in one of the uh, lectures about him in Arabi, that's what they said. They said, Ulama Asham used to read his books, write him letters of approval, attend, they attended his janazah. And what is the ruling of attending the janazah of a fasiq fil jawara, a sinner of limbs, let alone an innovator, let alone a, a complete zindiq. The imams are not allowed to attend those funerals. It's a signal to the people. He's a fasiq. Imams should not attend the funeral. And I'm saying this as a general rule. Maybe there are exceptions here and there, right? But they don't attend, uh, they don't, uh, are not allowed. It's makru as karahiyah, not tahrim. Karahiyah, discouragement, not prohibition. To attend the funeral of a public center, let alone an innovator. And a zindiq doesn't even get a burial. Like, how about that? If he's actually a zindiq, why did they even bury him with the Muslims? He shouldn't have been buried with the Muslims at all. Go, find someone else to bury him. That's how it would be. Or we would bury him. Like, let's say your mom's a non-Muslim. She dies. What do you do? You don't give her the rituals of ghusl and all that, but you shroud and bury. That's it. No prayers, no rituals, nothing. But you do have to respect the body. You shroud it and you bury it in a non-Muslim graveyard. That's what you do if you have a non-Muslim parent. So why don't they do that with him? Or just let someone else do that. But no, they all got involved. They all prayed the janazah upon him. And there are a lot of quotes from their contemporaries in praise of him. But the works were deemed to be confusing to people, and hence we don't read them. Also, he said he had famous for bad handwriting. I guess this is what maybe Sheikh Amin would call a kappa, because it does sound a bit fishy, right? They say he had terrible handwriting, right? And so the copyist is like, well, I don't know what he's saying here. Let me just... You know, come up with something, right? What? Oh yeah, yeah. So his, his yeah, he just accidentally wrote uh, all his tanzihi content, yeah, all over Sahih Muslim. So what are they gonna say about Imam and Nawi that a, an Ashadi took over the copyists of him, right, and then and wrote all that stuff? What is the difference between a fasiq and a zindiq? A fasiq, generally we use this term as a shameless public sinner. We all commit sins, right? But we don't do it publicly in front of everybody. We shouldn't, right? Openly. I'm going to open a liquor store with no shame. Versus, behind closed doors, I f fall for my ego and my nafs. And I obey my nafs privately and I feel bad about it that type of person still has the ability to be a salih and a tawab and be beloved by Allah because he makes tawbah. He has the decency and the iman to keep his sins private. The fasiq has passed that boundary. 
sadly and unfortunately for him, he sins publicly and openly. Okay? That's a fasiq. Then you have an innovator, a muqtadir, a bid'i. He has, he's transgressed, he's, he's past the level of sins of the limbs and he's into beliefs now. He holds beliefs that are heretical, that are inconsistent with the Quran. He's a muqtadir. The muqtadir is a Muslim, but his deeds are not accepted until he corrects his iman and we don't pray behind him, we don't go to his masjid, we don't do anything with him. Then as indiq, his beliefs are out of Islam altogether. We don't bury him. The marriage with him is invalidated on the spot. The marriage to an innovator is sinful. What? His beliefs are out of Islam. It's a heretic. A ca- he's a ca- he is a kafir, but he calls himself a Muslim. Yeah, Qadiani call themselves Muslim, right? And that's the difference between the apostate. The apostate is telling you, I'm not a Muslim anymore. He apostated. Openly, he's not having the identity of a Muslim. The Zindiq has the identity of a Muslim. He's saying I'm a Muslim, but his beliefs are completely against Islam, such as the Muslim evolutionists. In one opinion, they're completely Zindiq, right? In another opinion, they're Mubtadiya, right? I like the opinion of Sheikh Noor. You're a Zindiq, okay? You got to make things cut and dry. You give these people an inch, Muslim evolutionist. is one of the most um, absurd ideas. I'll tell you why. Because they have to believe that Sayyidina Adam and Sayyidina Hawa had parents. And these parents were not human. So some mammal or other. Some ape-like mammal. So wait, either, right, where does that lead us? There are apes in the heavens? Or that they were created here on the earth. But then how did you come down? Go down from it. So go down from heaven to earth? No, they say, no. There was a hill. <laughs> and they came down go down from this hill wait where's the, such a special hill on the earth that I would not want to come down from right and how does that explain that Adam and Hawa lived on a mountain so they clearly didn't go off a hill they stayed on a hill they lived on a mountain right and why do they live on a mountain because mountains have everything there are two types of mountains there's this the rocky mountain and there's the 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 mountain with life in it the mountain that has trees and caves and rivers and streams and goats. And, and it makes sense because they didn't yet build homes. So they had cover, right? They had ability to go into a cave from the, for the shade and stuff like this, right? Until they learned to build homes and do other things and settle on the flatlands, right? So uh, how do you explain all this? So you just keep going from one thing to the next. Oh, you have a problem explaining away because they they are married to causation they hold causation to be absolute that causation is the real musabib of things that's the real aqidah problem with the muslim evolutionists all right explain to us prophet jesus and allah brought prophet jesus onto the earth around the middle of the time of human or late in the time of humanity right so then where is exactly your explanation of prophet jesus they say no he did not have the institution of the father he had a father, but he had the institution. So wait a second, how is Maryam a virgin then? Are you saying, well, where is her marriage? Like, think about this. In Islam, marriage is public, right? Where is her marriage? And why is Asa attributed to her and not to the father? So what if his father died? You're still son of that father, right? Is not Muhammad ibn Abdullah, alayhi salatu wasalam? 
Did he ever meet his father? No. But he's called Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Why is Isa called Isa ibn Maryam? Right? That's the only attribution possible for him. Right? So they just keep digging hole after hole after hole after hole. The Muslim evolutionist. Ajhal al-Mubtadi'a. Ajhal al-Zanadiqa is the Muslim evolutionist. He is the most ignorant of Zindiqs. He will dig himself into hole. And I told you before what one of them said. He said that there is a possibility in nature of mammals or animals giving birth without a pair. Right? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, just gives birth like that without anything. I said, okay, give me one example. He said, there's a species of frogs. I was like, wow, you went from one heresy to another. So you are now saying that she just happened to have a kid like a frog. Now, frogs, that species of frogs, all of them do that. All those frogs have, <laughs> right? They give birth. Asexual reproduction. All the frogs have that. So if that was the case in humans, then why don't we have that all over the place? Why just one and it happened to be the mother of a prophet? Come on. Look, they're married to causation. That's what they believe. The, things can only exist by causation. We say, yes, when Allah wills something to exist, there is a cause that he creates and he can create any cause he wants and he can create without a cause if he wants. A cause being a middle thing, right? Okay. That's their problem. And why is it that it has to be something that you could see? It could be a cause that you don't see. Right? So materialists, I think, is the wrong explanation of people. They're not materialists. They're reductionists. They reduce knowledge to what the, their own eyes can see and their tools can measure. We say, no, there, there are everything that is created is material in its nature. There are different materials. The soul is a very subtle vapor-like material, some people say. Why? Because Allah says he blows in it. He blew it into the soul, uh, into the body. And what do you blow? A vapor, right? So it's vapor-like. They say it is a warm vapor-like substance. Very subtle vapor. Why do they say it's warm? Because when it's removed from the body, the blood cools down. What is the source of heat in the human being is the blood, right? And the blood passes through the heart. So that they, from all this, they were deduced backwards that the nature of the soul, we can maybe be able to say, it's a warm vapor-like substance that settles in the heart of the human being and hence warms up the heart okay and that's why you could take off different limbs and you could still be alive but you take out the heart and you're dead so this is what some speculations that they say that it's warm vapor like like material that settles around the area of the heart and warms the body up and it it is the soul that requires the air right so that is another proof that it's vapor like because it needs air Right? It needs to breathe. You take the soul out and the body cools down and the air stops coming out of the body. Right? And that's how you know that the soul is gone. They used to take a mirror or a glass in front of and put it in front of a person to see if the breath would create a vapor. If there's breath, they know he's still alive. If there's vapor, they didn't, not everyone knows how to check the pulse, right? If there's vapor on the glass, they know he's still alive. That is the effect of the soul. That's what they say. So, um, we don't deny that 
every that there's that everything that Allah creates has a material substance. We assume that, uh, we accept that. But what we do deny is that it's limited to what we can hear and see. Okay, uh, Khalil says, "How do we explain a heart transplant?" Then, good question. Well, the heart is kept alive, and then merely the organ is changed. We're not saying that the heart is married to that. The soul is married to that specific heart. We don't say that, right? Actually, just to add on to that, I think yeah. Sheikh Murad mentioned this. Yeah. Uh, he was saying how the people that do heart transplants, they found that a lot of times what happens is the person's like heart that it was, they tend to pick up on that person's personality. They do. So I think it's it a bit like, of a mixture, right? Like, and it's like, it's not even just like, uh, like now and like then. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like one in a hundred. It's like something that they see. It's consistent. Common. And then I think uh, yep. there was one like case of like, I think it was like a pig heart transplant some guy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that. What happened to him? He died, right? I think he, I don't know if he died, but from what I remember, he started picking up traits. Of a like pig. Of an animal. Unbelievable. Do you remember that? I don't know. Like it was pretty big. We got to look that up. Yeah, yeah. Look that up real quick. That's interesting. We see a lot of them act like pigs without the transplant, right? <laughs> Uh, but that's a good question. So we don't know a lot about uh, of these things, but we're deducing backwards based upon what Allah said in the Quran about the ruh. The ruh, there's a lot of discussion on the ruh and the nafs. It's very clear in the Quran that it's the nafs that is responsible, that is uh, takes action, that will be asked, okay? And that the ruh is akin to a secret um, inspiration in the human being of how he should live. Because the ruh in the Quran is always referring to a new creation and a new law and a new set of rules. So why Sayyidina Isa ibn Maryam in specifics called the ruh of Allah? Everywhere Sayyidina Isa is mentioned, the ruh is, he's described as a ruh. He's aided by a ruh because he was created differently and hence has a different set of rules by which he lives. He can at any time, by the permission of Allah, give life to the dead. He was doing it all the time. What other prophet did this regularly? He, by the permission of Allah, is able now to cure the blind. Okay, Who else can do that? Not just one time. or No, regularly cure skin diseases and other diseases he has a different he also can leave this earth go to the heavens and come back right who else has this way of living why because he's a new creation remember we said earlier human being is created six different ways so why do evolutionists stuck that creation has to be one way adam was created one way Hawat was created one way zachariah saying Yahya and ishaq were created one way all of us were created one way. Say, Naisa was created a different way. And all of us will be recreated in the afterlife a different way. Okay. How will your soul meet your body? Are you going to be born again? No. You're not going to be born again. Your soul will come out. And then the matter that will com- make up your body will be like magnetically attracted to that soul. And you have a new body. Boom. We could have been created like that earlier. Say, Adam could have created, been created like that if Allah wanted. But he wasn't. Say, Adam was created as a statue first. A statue that you could knock. Salsalin kel Personality. All right, let's close with this. Personality changes following heart transplantations. This has been reported for decades, including uh, accounts of recipients acquiring the personality characteristic of the donor. Okay. 
four categories of per- move it over a little bit because the lamp's in the way. Uh, personality, yeah, that's good. Personality changes are discussed in this article. Changes in preferences, alterations in emotions and temperament, modifications of identity, memories from the donor's life, memories. Well, imagine having memories, but it's someone else's life. What, by the way, we're reading from PubMed. Okay. It's like an actual, uh, yeah. Article. Okay. Um, the acquisition of donor personality characteristics by recipients following heart transplantations is hypothesized to occur via the transfer of cellular memory. And four types of cellular memory are epigenetic memory, DNA memory, RNA memory, and protein memory. Other possibilities, such as the transfer of memory via uh, intracardiac neurological memory and energetic memory are discussed as well. Implications for the future of heart transplantation are explored, including the importance of re-examining our current definition of death, studying how the transfer of memories might affect the integration of a donated heart, determining whether memories can be... So you donate the heart of a Hafiz, you suddenly wake up as a Hafiz, can be transferred via the transplantation of other organs and investigating which types of information can be transferred via heart transplantation. This is crazy. Someone, What's that? I don't know how true this is, but yeah. someone commented there's a case of a girl with a new heart who solved the murder of the donor. Wow. The person got killed. That is amazing. I guess they, like tapped into the memories before they died Bro. and then like saw who killed them. Netflix, oh, Netflix movie right that's there. Crazy. I mean, that's a great movie plot. That is a great movie that's plot, insane. right? That's a great movie plot, All right? Little girl grows up, uh, has an accident, needs a, or has, has a disease or whatever, gets the heart transplant, right? And then uh, starts having visions and starts having different preferences and then all of a sudden she uh, beca- uh, finds herself in a location where she shouldn't be, where the criminals are, right? She doesn't know why she's attracted to this warehouse, right? Uh, and then all of a sudden she finds criminals there and then all her memories come back and she realizes she solved a massive crime. That's actually a good plot. That's a movie. And it's not even supernatural. She was eight years old, huh? It's not even supernatural. No, it's not even science fiction. <laughs> the pig. Wow, 61 days. Experimenting on people. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are over the time. Jazakumullah khairan, everyone. We'll see you all Monday, bi'idhnillah. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk. Wal asr. Inna al-insana lafi khusr. Illa al-ladhina amanu. وعمل الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته